Well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to look around, see new faces. Welcome. If this is your first time, welcome. It's good that you're here. Please uh, feel free to hang around afterwards, get a coffee. We'd love to get to know you uh, and find out who you are and why you're here. Um, it, again, that never, that never sounds better, does it? Why are you here? No, it's good. Um, if you don't know who I am, I, my name is Matt. Um, I help lead a life group here. And I'm part of the teaching team. And so if you have a Bible or a phone with a Bible on it, please turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be finishing off Mark chapter 9. And while you turn to Mark chapter 9, I'll just mention this. Last week, uh, there's a clothing store next door. And there was a sale going on next door. And there's a whole line of people queuing up outside. And, and I saw this guy who had this T-shirt, probably a very cool T-shirt, probably a very expensive T-shirt. And on it was written, Hellraiser. And I just thought, I need that. I need that T-shirt, not just because it's very cool and very expensive and I'd like to know what that's like, but also because <laughs> this morning I will be raising hell, which um, uh, might, might sound like I'm just going to pick up Emily's guitar and smash it through the television screen or something like that. That is not the kind of hell raising I'm talking about. In fact, it is Jesus this morning who raises the subject of hell and God's judgment. And I've got to warn you, some of the things that Jesus says here are perhaps the most offensive and most shocking things that we will find Jesus say in the book of Mark. So let's read. (laughs) Let's find out what he says. Uh, This is Mark chapter 9 from verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. See what I mean, right? Okay, good. Just, Just checking. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Yes, there are some things that Jesus says there that do shock. And that is rather, I should say, rather Jesus' intention. That's what he wants us to feel because the stakes here are very high. You know, it's all quite shocking for two reasons, right? One, there is what Jesus says, just the facts of what Jesus says about God's judgment. That is one shocking thing. And the second thing is the way that he says it. I mean, Jesus uses some quite violent imagery here that's quite surprising, So, for example, let's let's just take the the first thing that Jesus says. Jesus says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Okay? So Jesus is saying, imagine what you've got. If if you've got a child who is a a believer in Jesus, or you have maybe not a literal child, but a, a, a very new Christian, and what you do, instead of leading them to Jesus, if what you do, you lead them away from Jesus, into sin and into unbelief, Jesus says it would be better if you have this huge millstone, right? This massive rock that people would use to to grind uh, grain and wheat. And Imagine this huge rock. It would be better if that was tied around your neck and then you were thrown into the sea. That is better, Jesus says, when compared to 
to God's judgment, that would be a more preferable end. That would be a better way to go. Now, for some of us, this Jesus that we come to and see this morning is not the Jesus we were expecting. It's just not the Jesus. I mean, for some of us, our image of what Jesus is like and the sort of things that he's, he, he would say just gets shattered when we read what Jesus says here. Perhaps there is just a side to Jesus here. Maybe we know this is a side to Jesus, but maybe it's a side to Jesus that we just don't want to see very often. And there might even be a temptation when we read the book of Mark to, to get to bits like this and kind of just silently go, oh, don't know, what, don't know what this is all about. I'm just going skip, to skip the last bit of chapter 9. Let's just start, start chapter, chapter 10 together. Maybe deep down, maybe we just wish we could cut this bit out of our Bible. Maybe. And I want us to be careful, though. Careful with that sort of thinking, that sort of feeling. Um, and he, here's why. I don't know how many of you have heard or come across, you know, Thomas Jefferson. You know Thomas Jefferson? I know, wrong part of North America, but Thomas Jefferson, you know, one of the founding fathers of the United States and one of the, I think, the third president, I think that's right. I don't know. I'm English. I don't have a clue. Um, they, they won the war and then they went off and did their own thing. I don't know anything about that. So Thomas Jefferson, this is true. One day he, he, he sat down with, uh, this is a famous story, you've probably heard of this, uh, sat down with a copy of the King James Bible, a pot of glue and a razor blade. And what he did, he cut away all the things that he did like from the Bible and kind of threw away all the stuff he didn't like. So he cuts it out and and creates this, effectively, a new Bible, a Jefferson Bible. You can buy it on Amazon. Don't do that. Don't do that. Um, And and here's why. It's because it's not really worth it. I mean, you can find a PDF online. It's like 18 or 20 pages. Like, in, in his words... In his words, uh, so he wrote to a friend, he just described what he was doing and why. In his words, he separated the gold from the dross. And if it's only 18 pages long, it turns out there's a lot of dross in his, <laughs> in his mind. He just, he wasn't, I mean, everything he didn't like, he ditched. Okay, so everything, when, when Jesus says that he is divine, he got rid of that. Anything when Jesus talks about demons or heaven, and of course, hell, he just got rid of it. Um, But for all Jefferson's arrogance, he was at least honest. So in that that letter when he wrote to a friend, he just describing why he was doing this, he said, um, I am of a sect by myself. Jefferson, he he acknowledged um, that he had essentially made his own custom-made religion, his own custom-bespoke God. He knew his own view of God was exactly what he wanted his God to be like. He said, "I've I've made my own God. That's what he said. Now that's Jefferson, okay? But now can I ask, what happens when God says something that goes contrary to what you think or what you feel or maybe even feel very strongly? What happens when we read something like perhaps maybe we've read this morning in Mark chapter 9? We just go, I don't, I don't think I agree with that. What happens then? Because I think in those moments, in those moments, I think a lot gets revealed. See, we may not literally, I don't think any of us have ever sat down with a copy of the Bible and a, and a razor blade and cut things. I don't think any of us would have done that. But aren't we capable, aren't we capable of doing the very same things in our heads, ignoring Jesus' words or, or putting more emphasis on another thing or just going, I'm just gonna, I'm not going to read that book of the Bible because I know what's in it. I'm just going to read the bits I, I really like. Can't we do that as well? May I suggest that the things Jesus says that are most offensive to our sensibilities, maybe they're the things 
we most need to pay attention to. We're not, by the way, and we're not going to do that this, this morning. We're not going to, like, Rich isn't going to get another champagne bucket and come around and there's, everyone takes a pair of scissors and everyone cuts out the Bible. That's not how we're going to do it this morning. And, and, since, and since we're not going to do that, since we're not going to ignore or, you know, skip to the edge, let's just go to chapter 10. Since we're not going to do that, let us then talk about hell. Now, hell, I, I don't think hell for starters, is an abstract, distant concept or idea at all. I think everyone here knows, like, even if you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus, you're not even religious at all, maybe you don't think there is a God, I, I do think that even you have this sense, don't you, that, that there is a deep brokenness to this world, that there is something just not right. You, you have that sense that things just aren't okay, that there's, there's pain, that there's broken relationships, that there's, there's sickness, there's death. It, it's a hell of a life, isn't it? it? It can be a hell of a life. It wasn't meant to be that way. It wasn't meant to be that way. So if you're wondering, well, how do we get here? How do we, how do we end up living in this kind of hellish existence? What, what brings us to this point? Here's, here's the Christian story. Here's the Christian story, okay? In case you're wondering. So before all of this, God the Father... Loved God the Son with the love of the Holy Spirit. God the Father loved God the Son in the love of the Holy Spirit. We call that the Trinity. You don't need to know what it's called. You just need to know that before all of this, there was love. There was perfect love. There was perfect light. Such that God says, you know what, this, this love, this perfect love, this perfect light, it's too good. We, this thing is too good to keep to ourselves. So let's make a creation. Let's make a humanity to live and experience that perfect light, that perfect joy forever. Let's do that. And so God makes the world and makes humanity. But at some stage, we have turned away from him. We have turned away from the, the, the perfect light and the perfect love. And what happens? What happens when you turn away from the God of life? You turn to death. That's just how it goes. What happens when you turn away from, from the, the God of light? Well, you turn to darkness. That's just the way of things. Now, when you turn, you know, when, when we've turned, God doesn't see this take place doesn't see us turn away from him and God doesn't, isn't just like, well, I'm ambivalent about this. He, God doesn't see us turn away from his love and light and kind of shrug his shoulders. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God sees us turn away from his light and his goodness and his love and himself. He sees that and the Bible says God is angry. God is angry. Now you might say, well, hang on, Matt. No, 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 that's not... You can't just switch it up like that. You were talking about, just a few moments ago, about God of, of love, uh, perfect love and perfect light. And, and Rich was saying stuff about, uh, about God's uh, steadfast love. And we're going to sing about how you can't just now, you can't just make him switch it up like that and make God a God of anger. That's not, that's not okay. You can't just do that. Anger, love, those two things don't go together, you might say. But you know they do. You know they do. I mean, just we can do a, but we can prove it right now, okay? Just in your mind, I want you to bring to mind the person that you love the most. Got them in your mind, that person you love the most. Now imagine, imagine this, imagine harm coming to them. Imagine someone else coming in and doing them harm. What do you feel? What do you feel rise up? Is it anger? 
I, I should think so. I should think so. Of course, in fact, I'd go as far to say this. If you don't feel some anger rise in, on some level, I would question the love. See, this is why. This is why Jesus talks about millstones around necks when he talks about spiritual harm coming to children or to those who are new in their faith. Also, I, I think that's why Jesus talks about sin just the way he does here. You know? And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell to the unquenchable fire. See, this, this disconnectedness, this hell on earth that you and I experience, Jesus says it's only the start. Jesus says, like, you know, this experience that we have of all the difficulties and the pain and the death and the things we just go, this isn't right, and we feel that deep ache deep down inside. Jesus says it's, it's only the start. It's, only, it's like a trailer for a film. You know, if you've seen a, a trailer for a film, I don't, I don't really like trailers from the film I can, for, for films because when I see a trailer, I, kind of, I can work out what the whole story is just from seeing Or if you've seen like, a, a trailer for a comedy film, like that is... That either saves you a lot of time or ruins the whole experience. Because if you see a trailer for a comedy film, you've seen all the jokes. You've heard all the jokes. So you can see the whole film in two minutes. Job done. Don't need to go and see the film. See, Jesus says, what, what you've experienced of this disconnected life right now, it's only the start. It's like a, it's a, like a trailer for a film you do not want to see. You know, Jesus says it's like, you know... We, this disconnected hellish reality you've seen it in the bud form listen you, you don't want to see it in full flower you just don't see because you and i the bible says you and i we go on forever listen if, if you're if you're not if you're here this morning you're someone i'm, I'm not a christian yet that's my, might be what you say I, I don't think i i believe this is something you really want to consider did jesus rise from the dead because if he did and the Bible's right that you and I go on forever. Doesn't that raise the stakes in all of this tremendously? Doesn't this raise the stakes? I think it does. If there's condemnation now, you know, if there's disconnection now, don't we want to nip it in the bud before it becomes an eternal thing? You know, a, a, question, a question I've got many times over many years from many different people um, is this, like, how, how can a loving God, that loving God we were just talking about, how can a loving God send people to hell? How could a loving God do that? That might be you this morning. You might have come into church and you're thinking through the claims of Jesus. You're thinking through whether there is a, a God. And this might, be, this might be for you one of the main stumbling blocks to faith of just going, I, I don't know if I can get, I don't know if a God who would send people to hell is even worth singing and worshipping. I don't know if I could follow that sort of God. Um, Bertrand uh, Russell was probably the most prominent atheist of the last, last century, certainly thought so. So he said this, he said, um, there is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. So Jesus, in saying what he does in, in Mark chapter 9, to, to Mr. Russell... Jesus is morally defective. There is something wrong with him because he believes in hell. So that question might be a very powerful one for people in the room. How, how can a loving God send people to hell? And my answer, here's where I would start. How can he not? 
How can he not? Okay, so let's look at it like this. I'll use some sort of illustrations. Right? If you love something, let's say you love, you love bread. You just, you're all about bread. You love the smell, the taste, the cutting, just the feel of... You are just all about bread. But one day you notice in your bread some mold. Just in a part, what do you do? You take that mold and get rid of it. You separate, you exile the mold from the bread. Otherwise, otherwise what happens? The whole, the whole bread will be consumed and infected and corrupted, and the whole thing will be ruined, the whole thing will be destroyed. And because you love bread, you get, you get the mold away. Or maybe you don't love bread. Maybe you love growing vegetables in the city. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe, maybe you, you have a garden, and you just love to grow. You love your garden, but one day you notice a weed growing there. What do you do? What do you, you get that green and you throw it out. You exile the weed from the rest of the garden. Otherwise, the same thing is going to happen. It's going to, be, it's going to grow. It's going to spread. It's going to kill the vegetables. It's going to destroy everything. You get rid of it. Otherwise, the whole garden is lost. And just like with the, with the mold and with the weeds and, and how you exile them, that is exactly the image that Jesus uses here when he speaks of hell. You know, it's an alarming image that Jesus uses here. It's an image of, of fire, of, of fire that does not get extinguished. Um, it's a fire that never goes out and a worm that devours. And the picture here is that of a garbage dump. That, that's the picture here. I mean, you, we, I, don't know, I don't know in Canada whether you have garbage dumps that just burn rubbish. I mean, we call them rubbish tips. Um, there's just a... No one else? No. Okay, rubbish. Uh, That is right. Garbage dumps? Yes. So that's the picture that Jesus uses here. And the garbage dump is outside the city. It's far away. If you wanted to go from here and go to the nearest garbage dump, you'd have to go outside the city because that's where all the rubbish gets thrown. The trash. What do you call rubbish? Garbage. There's a real, there's a chasm here between me and everyone else except for the other English people in the room. The garbage dump outside the city. If you want to exile something, get rid of it, you send it outside. Because God is loving and he loves goodness and he loves perfection. How can he not exile evil from the world? How can he not remove evil from the world? How can he be good? And that's how God speaks of hell here. Hell as exile. Hell, Jesus says, is where that disconnection, where the, with the, the fractured outsider feel that we have in this existence becomes permanent. How can a loving God send people to hell? How can he not? If God loves goodness, if he loves perfection, if God does not seek to exile evil from his creation, how can he be loving? How can he love goodness? See, so when we... Think about all the evil in the world. We just go back in recent history, recent the last hundred years, and we think about the through the uh, you know the dictators, or you might might think of people who who all their decades and decades of evil uh, abuses are only discovered after after they are uh, dead and they got away with it. it. Looks it seems like they've got away with it, and and the question might change from how can a loving God send people to hell, and it might change to what about those? How can God be loving when those people seemingly have got away with it? That might be the change in the question, and actually that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because the first question is how can God judge, and the second question of what about those people who have got away with it is how why why isn't God judging? Why isn't He? And that might be another question people have. What about all those people who seemingly have got away with it? 
And a friend of mine back in England, he, he would get this question on occasion. And he would always answer the question like this. He would say, have you, have you seen Ocean's Eleven? Have you seen that film, Ocean's Eleven? I watched it just last week. It's a fun film. It's a film where Brad Pitt and George Clooney decide they're going to rob a casino. And so Brad Pitt and George Clooney, they go... They, there's one of the early scenes of the film is they go to this other person and say, hi, we're Brad Pitt and George Clooney, and we want to rob this casino. We're going to rob it. And, he, and the person's like, what? You, you can't rob this casino. This casino has never, ever been robbed. And you, kind of as the audience watching the film were treated to this montage of all the, the best attempts... To, to rob the casinos. You see this one guy, he's at the blackjack table and he grabs all this cash and he, he makes to sprint and he's immediately, just, he's immediately just punched down by the, just taken out by the security guard. And then you see the second time, the second best uh, attempt to rob the casino. This other guy, is, he's looking all shady. He grabs the money, he dodges the security guard, he makes a break, he makes it around one, one table, another table, and then he's just tackled to the ground and the money flies in the air and goes everywhere. But then you get to see the best the best attempt to rob the casino. And it's a guy, he grabs the money and he dodges the security guard and he makes it around the tables and he dodges the other security guards and he makes it out through the door. He's made it out. And the door slams shut, but then the camera turns to outside and you see him just running down the street and all these security guards open fire. And my friend would go, well, well on that last, the last one, okay, that last scene, imagine you're the, inside the casino. Imagine you're inside the casino and you just see this guy, the door slams shut. He's got away with it. He's got away. He's stolen the money. He has done it. Why? Why is there no justice? How can God be good when he gets away with it? But of course, the gunshots outside tell a very different end. When we think of all the evil people in the world and in history, and we ask, did, did they get away with it? Jesus, as he talks about hell in Mark chapter 9, says no. No, they didn't. No one does. We can think of all those evil people out there, can't we? And yet, it's not just those evil people out there, is it? It's not. See, evil does not merely exist out there in those bad people in the mugshots in the newspapers. It's not just out there. It's me as well. Evil exists in here. I know this. No one likes, I think one of the reasons people can really struggle with the idea of hell is that no one likes being compared to mold or to, to weeds as something that needs to be exiled for, for, for true perfection to, to take root. But it's true. Imagine you have a perfect creation, unsullied by sin and death and disease and sickness, a perfect creation, and you, you pick me up. You pick um, uh, sinful, uh, unredeemed Matt Lewart and you drop him into that new creation. I would ruin everything. I, by myself, would manage to corrupt the whole thing. We don't like that thought of... Well, actually, here's what we don't think of. We don't think of sin in that way. We don't tend to normally, except for the really bad stuff, we don't tend to think of sin, of, of doing things that God doesn't doesn't like it, that aren't good, as something that needs to be cut off, something that needs to be exiled, something that needs to even be judged. But of course, Jesus, being perfect, does. Because Jesus sees things how they really are. See, the whole reason Jesus comes to earth, enters this world, this, this hellish, disconnected life, and yet lives perfectly, is in order to destroy sin. That's why Jesus comes. 
Jesus so hates sin, so hates all of its effects, and so loves you and so loves me that he is utterly devoted to ending it for good, even if what that means is him stepping into human history and living this disconnected hellish life. Even going to the cross and there dying so that sin may be utterly, once and for all, put to death. See, Jesus is the judge who puts himself in the dock, who puts himself in the dock and then gives himself the harshest sentence so that no one would ever have to go to hell. That's what Jesus does. Because the perfect one dies for our sin, for those of us in the room who are Christians, for those of us who have put our faith in what Jesus has done, we have no fear of hell. For those of us who have put our faith and believe that Jesus died and risen again for us, you know what? This is the closest to hell that we will ever get. Christians, because of what Jesus has done for us, we, we no longer live a disconnected life with God, but now we get to abide in Jesus. We get to live in Jesus, enjoy his presence even as his Holy Spirit lives within us. You know, that, that disconnection that took place between us and Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is mended. And we get to experience, we get to enjoy his perfect love forever. And as a result, if now we are destined to be with him, if, that is, if that's true, oh, everything else changes. Everything else changes changes. Look at what Jesus says about salt here. He says this, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. He, he's saying, you know how salt is this sub- substance that when you, when you add it to food, it just changes the taste so wildly. You know, you can, you can tell when salt has been added to something, and you can also tell, tell when it hasn't been added. You know, the taste is that radically different. And Jesus is asking, is salt even salty if it is salt even salt if it is not salty? Is that what what use is that? What what good is that? What is the point? The, the, the fact is that if we are not disconnected from God anymore, that ought to change everything. And Jesus does not want his people. He does not want those that he has saved and redeemed and made his own and brought back into his, in, into his love. He does not want those people to act or to live as if that's not where they live. You know, people whose address has changed, he's like, no, what, don't go back. That's not where you live anymore. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, he's, you, you know, you know what it's like to live that hellish, disconnected life. Why act like you live there anymore? See, this is why Jesus' language here is so, gets so exaggerated, why he, he uses hyperbole, like sin in your life, cut it off, cut it off. It's all of the visible signs of a deeply changed heart. See, the true salt here is repentance. If you're asking yourself, is my, is my Christian faith salty or not, don't, don't resist looking at the outward stuff. You know, we might hear, oh, um, we need to be salty, salty Christians. And, and so we say, okay, I've got to go and do stuff. I've got to really go and work hard out there somewhere. I've got to go and or, or post something on Facebook to tell people about Jesus. And we go, that, that's the salt. And I would say, hang on, no, 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 no. Repentance first. First, repentance, turning away from sin, turning to God in our minds. It's a heart-level thing first. 
Yes, of course. Sometimes, you know, repentance means going and doing something. Right? Sometimes it means going and saying, Hi, I, I wronged you, Brendan. I sinned against you. I stole all your money. Sorry, Brendan. And, and making up. Sometimes that's what re, what's repentance is required. But it starts at a heart level first. See, that ability to, to cut off and, and tear out from our lives the, the, the sin that we, we know we don't want to live with anymore, it, it can never flow from just raw effort. It can never flow from just, I'm going to white knuckle this, I'm going to really get all my energy up. Because if you've tried that, you know that that doesn't work. It doesn't work long term. You know how doomed to failure that is. Is your approach one of cutting off, of exile in sin? Because that's what the changed heart allows us to do. By his spirit, by his power, he lets us live that life free from sin. See, all this talk of sin, all this talk of hell, I'm, I'm just imagining some people here this, this morning might be saying, well, there's, there's not much grace here, Matt. Grace? What about grace? You're just talking about sin and hell and death. This is fun. So, so much for Grace City Church. Grace City Church. Where's the grace? And if you're thinking that this morning, you, you haven't seen grace. You haven't seen grace in its fullness. See, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, he, he just says this about hell and grace. He says this, No doubt it is true that the subject of divine wrath has in the past been handled speculatively, irreverently, even malevolently. No doubt there have been some who have preached of wrath and damnation with tearless eyes and no pain in their hearts. No doubt the sight of small sects cheerfully consigning the whole world, apart from themselves, to hell has disgusted many. Yet, if we would know God, it is vital that we face the truth concerning his wrath, however unfashionable it may be, and however strong our initial prejudices against it. Otherwise... Listen to this. Otherwise, we shall not understand the gospel of salvation from wrath, nor the sacrificial achievement of the cross, nor the wonder of the redeeming love of God. See, grace is this, getting what we don't deserve. Grace is this, getting what we don't deserve. See, Packer is saying that until we see Until we look directly in the face of what we do deserve, we won't find grace in any way amazing, astonishing. It's only when when we see what we have been saved from that we get amazed by what God has done. We won't see how truly astonishing it is that we have forgiveness. Until we see Jesus, the judge, the judge, oh, the scary judge, he's going to judge. The judge gets judged. He judges himself in our place. Only then do we see that we get rescued, each of us, from death and hell and what we deserve. And rather than a disconnected, hellish, miserable existence, we now, we now get to enjoy the fellowship, the richness of knowing God in this life, knowing that there's nothing, nothing between God and us. Fellowship with our Heavenly Father forever. Let's pray together before I pass this back to Rich. Father, I just thank you. We just thank you for Jesus. We just thank you for the cross. The cross stands over it all, Lord. I thank you that 
Matt Luard ought to be destined for hell, and because of your goodness and your grace and your mercy and nothing to do with me, you have saved me from that. Lord, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. I'm amazed that you would do that for me. Lord, I, I thank you. I love you. We, we worship you this morning. Thank you, Lord. You are the Savior. Amen.